you're new with us today, we are uh, working through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, known appropriately as Romans. Uh, We're in the 29th message in this series. Our title this morning is, What Then Shall We Say to These Things? And uh, I've been hearing from many of you that this series has been helpful and encouraging and instructional, enlightening, all those good things. And so I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, for how God is using this. We are in Romans 8. Would you find your Bibles, please? I hope you brought a Bible this morning. If you didn't, there are Bibles in the aisles. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It's our gift to you. You can tell all your friends you stole a Bible from a church. <laughs> and would you stand with me and let's read this morning's scripture together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his word. You may be seated. Well, Paul's letter to the Romans is written in three basically three major sections. Simply understood, we could say that Romans 1 through 8 is his presentation of the gospel. Uh, Romans 9 to 11, which we will dive into next week, explores some problems pertaining to the gospel. And then Romans 12 through 16 deal with practicing the gospel in our daily lives. And uh, we are now at the end of chapter 8. We're at the end of that first section um, in Paul's presentation of the gospel. We might think of these verses today, verses 31 to 39 of chapter 8, as Paul's exclamation mark at the the, uh, close of the first of the three sections. And in today's passage... Paul concludes his presentation of the gospel of God concerning his son. The gospel of which he said he was unashamed because he understood this truth, that the gospel is not just a story for the history books, nor mere words, nor an intriguing philosophical or religious proposition. Paul understood and asserted that the gospel is in fact the very power of God himself that brings about salvation for everyone who believes, regardless of who they are, where they have come from. In the gospel, God reveals a righteousness 
that is by faith, he says, from first to last. A righteousness from God that can be ours through simple personal faith in Jesus Christ. So here in verse 31, Paul poses the question, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? Well, these things <laughs> may be what he's been talking about since chapter 8, verse 1, when he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 is just an amazing, amazing chapter. It may be everything he's been talking about since chapter 1, verse 1. The question is, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the gospel of God? What shall we say to justification by faith? What shall we say to a righteousness that comes from God as a gift on the basis of personal faith in his Son? What then shall we say to these things? And the question this morning is, what then shall you say to these things? What do you say? What, What do you think? What's your response? Having heard all of this, and some of you have suffered through 28 messages now, you know, um... What does it all mean to you? How do you summarize it? Where does it leave you? What conclusions have you drawn? What decisions have you made? Because when you understand the weight of the question, what then shall we say to these things? You'll understand that it is the most important question that you will ever have posed to you. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do about the gospel? And I want you to be thinking this morning about how you will personally answer this question. And at the close, I'm going to give you the opportunity to draw your own conclusion. What then will you say to these things? In light of the five foundational facts we have observed last week in verse 28 in the The five amazing affirmations expressed in verses 29 to 30. Paul now poses what I'm just going to call five unanswerable questions. Five unanswerable questions. Why are they unanswerable? As we progress through them, for each one, we will encounter a truth either contained within the question itself, or attached to it by a clause that begins with the word if. It's this element in each of the five questions which renders it unanswerable. And understanding why each question is unanswerable is the key to grasping its power and its significance. In the latter part of verse 31... Paul poses the first of the five questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? And just so that you'll begin to kind of dial into this pattern, consider with me for just a moment how long the list would be, how many people it might include if the question was simply, who can be against us? That might elicit a formidable list of adversaries, might it not? 
The unbelieving world, the world system itself is opposed to us, often hostile against Christians individually, the church collectively, often shaking its fist at God himself. Satan is the enemy of our souls. Uh, So are those demonic entities under his direction that Paul identifies in verse 38. And death itself is still an enemy. And we haven't even begun with the people in our homes (laughs) and in our neighborhoods, in our extended families, on our Christmas lists. Paul isn't asking that question by itself, though, is he? We have to add the if clause, don't we, if we're to really understand the question Paul is asking. If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? His premise is that God is for us. The message of the gospel is that God is for us, not against us. Remember those five amazing affirmations last week in verses 29 to 30? He has foreknown us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us to have put our faith in Christ. Since that is true, who can possibly be against us? To that question, there can be no answer. All the powers of hell may form in battle array against us. They may harass us and oppress us and irritate us, but they can never prevail against us. God is for us. He is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul continues to the second unanswerable question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And again, let's suppose for the moment that Paul had simply asked, will God not graciously give us all things? And we might hedge in our response because there are so many things we need, things we think we need, things we want. Some are difficult. Some of them, in the request for them, we may feel that we're demanding of God. We may lack confidence to even ask God to supply our basic needs. But don't miss the basis for Paul's conviction. The God who will supply all of our needs is first the God who did not spare his own son. In the third century BC, the Old Testament, which had been written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, which had become the dominant language in the Middle East because of a little guy named Alexander the Great. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. Uh, The name comes from the Latin word for the number 70, which represents the number of translators that worked on the project. Just hold that thought for just a moment. In Genesis 22, we read of God issuing a command to Abraham that was first surprising and then 
startling as it began to sink in, and then finally, truly horrifying. Verse 1 of that chapter begins by telling us that God intended to test Abraham. So he got Abraham's attention and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Horrifying. Unheard of. God of Israel would never issue such a command, would he? Burnt human sacrifices were typical of pagan worship, not the worship of the God of Israel. So the next morning, Abraham rose early, cut the wood for the sacrifice, saddled his donkey and took two servants and his son Isaac. Together they set out. When they arrived and Abraham understood from God where it was that he was to sacrifice Isaac, he told his servants to wait while he and Isaac went up to worship the Lord. The narrative tells us that Isaac carried the wood on his back. Abraham brought a knife and a bucket of glowing embers for the fire. And according to the narrative, up until that time, Isaac was unaware of the details of God's command to his father. All he knew was that there was something missing. There was no animal to sacrifice. So he asked, Dad, we have wood. You have a fire and a knife. But haven't you forgotten something? Where's, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Can't imagine that moment. Can't imagine... having to answer the question. And Abraham simply replied, God will provide for himself the burnt offering, my son. So they climbed up the hill together until they came to the place that God had designated. Abraham gathered stones, he built an altar, he arranged on the altar the wood that Isaac had carried up the hill. And then Abraham bound Isaac. And we're not told about the dynamic of that moment. I can't, again, I can't picture it. Isaac was not a boy. He was a grown man. And in that moment, he's understanding that he's the sacrifice. We're not told that he resisted in any way. Only that Abraham bound him, tied up his own son, the son that God had promised, the son that Abraham and Sarah thought would never be born, the son of their old age past their, the time of anyone's expectation of reproductive capability. 
the son whom he loved, and he laid him on the altar. And then he took a knife and he raised it over his head to plunge it into the heart of his son. But just at that fateful moment, the angel of the Lord suddenly calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him because now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld, you have not spared your only son from me. Sweet relief, joy. And Abraham looked up and he saw a ram that had become tangled in some bushes. And he took that ram and offered it before the Lord as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. From that time forward, there was a saying among the Israelites, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So come back with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 where Paul says, God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. And that word that he uses here in Romans 8.32 is the same word that translators of the Septuagint chose in Genesis 22.12. You see, 2,000 years later, another only son, 33 years old and loved by his father, climbed up that very same hill, carrying wood on his back in the shape of a cross. His name was not Isaac. His name was not Laughter. But Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And there on Mount Moriah, the only begotten Son of God became the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. On the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. 19th century British evangelist Octavius Winslow wrote these words, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father, the Father for love. If God didn't spare his own son, if he didn't withhold his own son from us, can't we trust that that kind of God can't we trust that God to graciously, graciously give us, along with the gift of his Son, everything else that we can possibly need? Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Paul's third unanswerable question is posed in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This question brings us in in our imaginations into a courtroom. And again, take the question Paul asks on its own. The answer is that many would raise their voices to accuse us. Am I right? First up might be the voice of our own conscience that accuses us. Next would be the devil. By the way, Martin Luther said, the conscience is that evil beast that makes a man take a stand against himself like that. The next would be the devil. His name, Diabolos, literally means slanderer. The name Satan means adversary. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brothers. And next would be in those in the world who would love to accuse us and slander us and hurl all kinds of allegations against us. But none of the adv- accusations of the adversary or the world or even the accusations of our own conscience can be sustained. They glance off of the shield of faith and they fall powerless to the ground. Why? Because it is God who justifies. It is the righteous judge who has handed down a verdict justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And he has justified us on the basis of our personal faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote verse 33, he was most likely reflecting On these words in Isaiah 50, he who vindicates me is near. Who who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? Paul's fourth question is this, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And in answer to this opening question as to who may condemn us, again, there are without doubt many who might, given the chance. Even our own hearts condemn us at times, and so do our critics, our detractors, those who are hostile towards God and Christianity in general. Satan himself is the prime minister of condemnation. And yet all of their condemnations will fail. It's not that their condemnations have no legitimacy by themselves. But their condemnations fail. Why? Paul gives us four reasons. First, he says Christ Jesus is the one who died. Sacrifice has been paid. When he died, he died in our place. He he died as our substitute. He died for each and every sin that would have condemned us. Remember these words earlier in, in Romans chapter 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ Jesus is that one man, that one obedient man. And he died in our place. Paul wrote in chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Next, Paul says it's, it's also because Jesus was raised. Back in chapter 4, verses 24 to 25, Paul wrote that Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was Jesus' resurrection from the dead that, that indicated so clearly that God had accepted his sacrifice, exalted him as his son. Third, Paul points out that Jesus, therefore, is at the right hand of God. And there the witness of the biblical writers is that the resurrected Christ is resting from his finished work. He's occupying the place of supreme honor to which God highly exalted him. He's exercising his authority to save and keep on saving. And he's waiting for his final triumph when his enemies become his footstool. And fourth, he adds that Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is your personal intermediary, your personal mediator, your personal attorney for the defense, always praying for us, always pleading our case, always advocating with us before God the Father. And because all that is true, you and I can confront the condemning message, the messages that come from within, those that come from without, with the truth that there is now no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Not anymore. Not anymore. Here's Paul's fifth and final unanswerable question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Theologian John Stott described these five questions, these five unanswerable questions as climbing a grand staircase with this final one as the top tread. And again, as in the previous four, Paul asks a question and looks around for an answer. And he ponders a list of adversaries and adversities that might be considered factors that could come between us and the love of Christ. In verse 35, he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All things these Romans, these Roman Christians may have been facing, all of which... 
Paul was no stranger to. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth, Paul described his experiences that included hard labor, imprisonment, countless beatings, often being near death for the sake of Christ. And then he adds this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. To reinforce his point, Paul quotes Psalm 44:22. The psalm speaks to persecution that Israel was experiencing at the hands of their enemies. And oftentimes God used other nations to, to judge Israel, to discipline Israel. But in this case, it's not because they'd been unfaithful or disobedient, but, but in fact because they had been faithful, because they had been obedient to God. Psalm 40, Romans 8.36 quotes Psalm 44.22, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remember that it was these Christ followers in Rome who were among the first to suffer persecution, to experience martyrdom at the hands of the empire. They were the low-hanging fruit. They were close. And Paul wrote these words just a few years before, before some of his readers were forced into hard labor. Uh, they were thrown to lions and gladiators. Some of them were used as human torches to light the gardens of the emperor Nero. And all because of their faith in Jesus. In verse 37, Paul arrives at the start of his conclusion. And he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, and this isn't empty blather. This isn't triumphalism. This isn't people beating their chests and saying, We are the champions of the world. This is not what's going on here. These are people who are suffering, people who are persecuted. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Some of you are facing significant adversity today in your lives. Some of you are dealing with chronic illnesses. Some of you are dealing with difficult marriage and family situations. Some of you are struggling financially. Some of you struggling inwardly. And Paul's message is this, that because of Christ, in all these things, in them, not in spite of them, in them, in the midst of them, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You say, I don't feel like a conqueror. I feel like the conquered most of the time. Paul wants us to know that because God is for us and not against us, because Christ died, was raised from the dead, lives forever to intercede for us, and is coming again for us because there is no longer anyone who can accuse or condemn us. Because neither life nor death nor even the most extreme human suffering imaginable can ever separate us from the love of Christ, we win. More than that, the verb that Paul uses here is in the aorist tense, which means we are winning. We have won and we are continuing to win. He's going back to the power of the cross. That's where it began, at the cross. And in all these things, we are winning. We are winning. We are more than conquerors. A better translation might be, in all these things, we are winning a most glorious victory. And the victory, the final victory, is guaranteed. And it's on this basis that in verses 38 to 39, we finally come to Paul's powerful persuasion in verses In those verses, he has asked whether anything in heaven or on earth has the power to separate us from the love of Christ. And here he puts the final enormous exclamation mark on this presentation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 8, and he does it by choosing 10 things that someone might think powerful enough to create a barrier between us and God's love. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a part of me as I began in my preparations for this message, there was a part of me that just wanted to say, hey, let's just sing it. Let's just turn this into a song and sing it. Or let's dance to it. Let's just turn it into a huge celebration. But I'm a teacher, so I have to analyze it. And what I want you to understand is that Paul isn't just, these aren't just words flowing out of his mouth, although I think in this moment, as he was writing this, Paul was worshiping. But he points first to death and life. Perhaps he has in mind the difficulties of our lives and the fears we experience when we approach death or think about death or lose a loved one. Next is angels and demons. They both share a common nature. They're spirit beings created to serve God. Demons are fallen angels who joined Lucifer in his rebellion against God before the dawn of time. Angels, in Paul's vocabulary, would be contrasted as those who did not rebel. But how could unfallen angels ever threaten us? And I think what Paul had in mind here was simply 
the realm of, of cosmic spiritual powers in general. Christ has triumphed over them all. Angels are in submission to him. Demons are in subjection to him. Neither will harm us nor can harm us. That's why we don't need to go around rebuking Satan, by the way. Or demons. Jesus already has. They're already defeated. Third, he points to things present and things to come. Neither the passage of time nor the events of history will ever separate us. You might look in your present circumstances into the future and be fearful. But know this, that whatever happens, nothing will ever separate you from the love of Christ. Fourth is powers. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul had in mind here. I, th- I think he may have been alluding to something like the pagan concept of fate or karma, the belief that, there, that our lives are controlled by vague impersonal forces at work in the universe rather than by the sovereign power of a personal God. They have no power to separate us from the love of Christ. Fifth, he includes height and depth. And again, I'm not exactly sure what he had in mind, but he may have been thinking of the words of David in Psalm 139 where he said, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. Nothing will ever separate us. Finally, maybe in an attempt to make sure he hadn't missed anything, Paul said, insert your issue here. No, that's not what he said. He said, nothing else in all of creation. But you can go ahead and insert your issue there. See, these five questions are not arbitrary. They, they point us to the kind of God we believe in and serve. They remind us that absolutely nothing can frustrate the purposes of God. Since he is for us, nothing can quench his generosity since he did not spare his own son. No one can accuse or condemn us because he has justified us through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing can disconnect us from the love of God since he has revealed it supremely in and through the cross of Christ. And none of this is to say that we are immune from any of the opposition, any of the adversity, that Paul identifies in this passage. What it does mean is that through it all, we can be secure in the confidence that we will never be unloved by God. I've, I've heard people say, in the midst of difficulty, sometimes jokingly, sometimes seriously, oh, God just hates me. God just hates me. Never communicate that message to yourself or anyone else. It's a lie. God loves you with an everlasting love. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, our confidence rests not in our love for God, but in his love for us. Our love for God is imperfect. It's 
inconsistent, weak, wavering, as the British say, a bit spotty. But his love for us is steadfast and sure. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on you. We will see it through to the end because he will see us through to the end. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They believe. They follow me. I I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. Amen? Isn't that good news? What then will you say to these things? What's your conclusion? What will be your response to the gospel that Paul has been laying out here for us over eight chapters? Masterfully, methodically, persistently laying out What will you say to these things? What will you say in response to God's love for you in Jesus Christ? Will you ignore it? Will you reject it? Will you walk away from it? What will you say to these things? See, here we are at the close of Romans 8. Here we are at the close of the first section of the letter. Here we are at the end of an incredible presentation, the fullest presentation of the gospel in all of the Bible. And the question is, what will we say in response to these things? What will you say? You can dismiss it. You can rationalize it. Or you can say yes to Jesus today. You can respond in faith to God. So here's what I know. Uh, If you're feeling nothing right now, if there is no tug at your heart, it may be that God is not calling you. But if he is calling you, here's what I would urge you. Respond today. Because you're not promised tomorrow. Your life can change in a heartbeat. Your life can end in a heartbeat. What will you say to these things? When will you say it? Because one second after death is too late. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die, and after that, judgment. What will you say in response to these things? I urge you, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive his gift of sins forgiven, reconciliation with God, eternal life. Will you stand with me? I want to invite the band to come as you do. And let's just read these words again together to wrap up this time in God's word. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.